There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 414. And today on the show, I'm joined by the one and only Randy Newberg to explore the current state of affairs of public lands in America and the topics, issues, and policies that we hunters need to be paying attention to and taking action on. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today, like I mentioned, we've got my buddy Randy Newberg on the show. And Randy is going to help us kick off uh, what I'm thinking of as Conservation Month here on the Wired Hunt podcast. It's the month of April. We've got Earth Day coming up this month. You know, we're a long ways off from deer hunting season. It's that kind of time of year, at least for me, when I'm thinking about, I don't know, spring, the renewal of the year, new growth, uh, new birth of fawns and turkeys and all those different things. It just got me thinking about, I don't know, about giving back, about the importance of what I just mentioned, conservation. If we as hunters want to be able to have a good time out in the field and fill our freezers and have wild places to explore and deer to chase, well, it's on us to make sure that those things are around. And that's why hunters for so long have been some of the most impactful conservationists in the entire country. So this month, I want to talk through and explore a variety of different topics along those lines. Today, it's going to be public lands. Later this month, we might be exploring some things like on-the-ground work we can be doing to improve habitat and and to help deer and other species. We're going to talk about national-level stuff. We're going to talk about state-level stuff, uh, explore a variety of different things. But today, it's public land. If you hunt deer on public land or if you have dreams of heading out west to hunt for elk or bears or mule deer or pronghorn, if you want to go out to these places, whether it be in the Smoky Mountains or the Rocky Mountains or the Cascades and, and go backpacking or camping, if you want to have places, uh, I don't know, wild, beautiful rivers to go rafting or fishing, any and all that stuff, it depends on our public lands. We've talked about this a lot over the years in the podcast, but this is a topic that evolves. 
every single year there's new things going on. There's new opportunities. There's new threats. There's new policies being proposed. There's new bills being moved through Congress. There's new stuff going on at all levels. And one of the people who is more up to speed on that kind of stuff than anyone else in our hunting community is Randy Newberg. I think most of you guys and girls know Randy, uh, but if not, he is, oh gosh, he's all over the place. You can be watching his show on YouTube or Amazon. You can be listening to his podcast. Uh, you can be following him on Instagram, his forum, uh, Hunt Talk Radio is the podcast, uh, On Your Own Adventures, Fresh Tracks. He's got a lot of stuff out there. He's been doing great work when it comes to entertainment, but also educating folks on the importance of public lands, the importance of conservation, and and ways that we can actually um, you know, take action as people on the ground. He's been one of those leading voices. And today, you know, that's why I want to talk to him. I wanted to talk to Randy about where we stand right now with public lands. Uh, how have things progressed over the last five years? What are the good things? What are the best things that have happened over the last five years? And what are some of the things that have been done maybe a little bit behind the scenes that have been damaging to our wild places? What are those things we need to be keeping tabs on and trying to fix? What's coming down the line now? You know, there's uh, the pendulum as far as politics has swung again. So what threats do we need to be watching out over the next four years? What opportunities do we have over the next four years? Uh, We talk about all that and a whole lot more. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. It was helpful for me. I think you will feel the same way. and, And I'm just glad that Randy was able to take the time to chat. So I hope you enjoy this one. I hope you'll be tuning in for the rest of the month as we're going to cover a whole bunch of different things along these lines that I think will be relevant to all of us deer hunters and and any one of us that love wild places, wild critters, and and all things in between. So uh, that's what's in store today. Real quick before we get onto that and and kind of along these same lines of conservation, I want to give you a quick update on something new that has just dropped from our pals at First Light just launched the Camo for Conservation Initiative. The basic gist of this is, as most of you probably know, if you listen to this podcast, First Light launched a whitetail-specific camel pattern this past fall. Just this week, that camel pattern is available to buy on some of their whitetail gear. So if, if you're looking for that kind of stuff, it is available now on the First Light website. But what's really cool is that this Camo for Conservation Initiative launched at the same time in which First Light is penciling in a certain percentage of proceeds from every sale of Spectre gear. So if there's a shirt print inspector, pants, uh, hat, whatever it is, a percent of every one of those sales is going to be donated to the National Deer Association. It's going to them to help with habitat work, to help with their field to fork hunter mentorship program, to help with all the different things that the NDA is doing to make sure that we have deer and deer habitat and the deer hunting traditions that matter so much to all of us. So I'm personally just really excited about that because those are things that I really care about. And I'm glad to see that First Light and, and the company I work for, Meat Eater, is stepping up and you know putting our putting our money where our mouth is. And and I'm proud of that and excited about that. So that's uh, that's my little update that I'm personally excited to share. And otherwise, I think I should stop beating around the bush. Let's get to my conversation with Randy Newberg. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for being here with me. Thanks for tuning in. And here we go. All right, with me now back on the show is Randy Newberg. Randy, welcome back. 
Mark, thanks so much for having me. I can't believe that anyone would ask me back for a second, third, fourth, whatever time. I really appreciate it. Oh man, the the the, the thank you goes back, right back to you. And um, I got to tell you, this is kind of crazy. When I was thinking through this conversation and what I was hoping we could talk about, I thought to myself, "Oh, let's look back and see what I talked to Randy about last time, or you know, see how far things had come since we last talked." And I went back through my archives and I'm trying to look, and I'm thinking, "Man, it must have been last year he was on." I was looking through there and nothing, and then I thought, "Well, maybe two years before that." And I went back and looked, and I realized I can't believe this. You haven't been on the show since 2017, unless I'm missing something. No, uh, that I don't about right. I don't know how that's possible, um, but. But it's 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 a horrible oversight on my part. So uh, I cannot imagine that that much time has passed and we haven't had you on the podcast. So I'm just glad that you're finally back and uh, glad that we can talk some more because every time, you know, whether it's on a podcast or coffee or whatever, I I, I really honestly appreciate and, and take something from every one of our conversations. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this one, Randy. Well, thanks, Mark. That goes both ways. But since 2017, your subscriber base and your listening audience probably grew by mounds, just astronomical growth. Yeah. Since I, I since since I wasn't on there, so I, I, I guess so. I've been no, I've been known to ruin a brand in a half an hour. So. <laughs> well, we'll see how much damage you can do, Randy. <laughs> let's, let's test the no, limits of that. <laughs> but thanks for having me, Mark. I I enjoy the times we do get to catch up. Uh, oh, whether yeah. it's on a podcast or just on the phone or whatever, it's uh, it's always uh, very helpful for me. Yeah. Well, you know, since you were first on the show, I think I first had you on the show back in, I don't know, it was probably 2015 maybe. And mm-hmm. at that point was when I was kind of going through a little bit of a an awakening of understanding what was going on around me in the world of public lands. And I was, you know learning so much about uh, public land policy and various contingencies and folks that were less uh, supportive of public lands than I was. And this is when the land transfer movement was really picking up steam. And I was looking to you for a lot of insight on that. And and obviously you'd been in that world for decades before I had and, and obviously are so well versed on it. So at that point, we're kind of at this, there was this rising concern around public lands and the land transfer movement. And yep. now you fast forward, you know, almost six years and and we're in a, a different place. And I'm curious if you were to take a step back and look at how far we have come, whether it be the hunting community. Well, I'll do a two part. How we've how far we've come as a hunting community and as just a public land, you know, the this the, the Oh gosh, I'm blanking on the right word here, but where we stand on public lands as far mm-hmm. as from 2014 or 2015 to now in 2021, if you had to take a look back and say, okay, how far have we come and are we in a better place, a worse place, the same kind of place? How do you feel? Like if you were to put your finger on the pulse of that, Randy, how do we compare now compared to then? Oh, it's, uh, I've, uh, when you're there doing it and you got your head down and you're fighting this battle and that battle and pushing the wagon up the hill, you you really think I'm? We're not making any progress. This is such laborious, just tedious effort. And now, when you get to measure it in five-year, ten-year windows, you look back and say, "All right, 2014, 2015, the folks who wanted to grab our public lands and take them 
have pretty much retreated because once again, they got their political teeth handed to them by thinking the public was somehow going to forget the value these lands have. And if you could have told me in 2014 that we would have elevated the public land issue within the hunting community, with the within the total outdoor community, to the level it it is at right now, that that would have cleared my my greatest wish by a mile. I because it just at the time it seemed so daunting and so so much momentum to the other side and so little to our side and through a lot of hard work a lot of people showing how much they care how much they're concerned uh getting the attention of policy leaders who said oh oh this was not a good idea who <laughs> who talked us into this idea uh here we are 6 7 years later and i'm I'm impressed, very, very impressed with how well-versed the hunting community is and, and to some degree the total outdoor community, but also how engaged we are when we feel that there are issues that are going to hurt or, or complicate our, our ability to enjoy these public lands. It's uh, It's been a an interesting journey, but uh, we've traveled way further than I could have ever dreamed. Yeah. So... If, if we were, I don't know, doing like an award show of the last five years and you were going to rank the biggest win of this five-year, half-decade half period from a public land perspective, like what's been our biggest win, do you think? Um, there's been a lot. There's been a, a lot of good things have happened, but what ranks up at the top for you? Um, boy, that's that's interesting that you say it in a, like an award show uh, because I'd be like, okay, Rookie of the year, uh, <laughs> a defensive MVP, MVP, offensive MVP. You can uh, name your whole team if you want. <laughs> uh, okay. The, I'll start with the defensive MVP. And what I look at there is there are Senate elections, at least in the, in the West, where the balance of those elections hang on those swing voters in the middle and how they're going to vote based on public land issues. And I'm looking at uh, Montana, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada. Right there are eight senators who we've, we've seen them all cycle through their elections in the last six or seven years. And those eight Senate seats have all bent over backwards, almost tried to prove who's the most pro-public land. So I'm thinking, you know, from a defensive standpoint, we've built a pretty good wall here now in some parts of the country. And, and we see it even expanding to other states, Washington, Oregon, uh, uh, to some degree in the Dakotas. Uh, and, you know, some of our greatest public land advocates have been from the South. Uh, you know, Senator Richard Burr was, he, he doesn't get enough credit, I don't think, for how much of a stick in the mud he was when many others wanted him to fold his tent. Um, public lands issues. And here he is, a guy from North Carolina. It's like, what? what well, why is he this passionate about it? So I look at that and I think from the defensive side, uh, 
whether we're giving ourselves the trophy or we give it out to someone else, the award goes to how good of a defense we have put together to force the other side to really think hard about why or how they would approach this. And when you're dealing with a Senate that's 50-50 and your issues are now elevated enough in some states where you can sway an election in the U.S. Senate, I could have never expected our issues to become that powerful on a national scale. It's it's a weird alignment of the political planets, yeah. but it's the reality. Uh, you, you look at the Colorado Senate election last year, and it was almost how can we prove which senator is the greatest public land advocate? And in those instances, it's like, well, even if the lesser, you know, the one who isn't quite as good at public lands were to get elected, that's a whole lot better than 10, 15 years ago when it was, let's bury the needle and see how bad we can be on public lands. We've spun that 180 degrees. So that's... uh, uh, th- that's been really, really interesting to see. Probably the offensive MVP award goes to the fact that we finally got Land and Water Conservation Fund permanently protected and fully funded. And that piece of legislation is the same age I am, Mark. I <laughs> I think about that. I was like, <laughs> well, whoa, uh, that was bill that came 64 out. 64 then? Yep. Yep. Exactly. And not to put an age on you, Randy. Sorry about that. (laughs) I know. That's fine. And so I first went, my first trip to Washington, D.C. was in 1998. There was a bill called Partners in Wildlife that the next year got converted to a bill called Conservation and Reinvestment Act. Don Young, a kind of a bit of a no net gain public land dude from Alaska. Mm hmm is the sponsor of the bill. And that bill would have done the same thing. It would have permanently and and permanently reauthorized and fully funded LWCF. It got killed. And I'd been to DC quite a few times since then asking for renewal. And and I'm just telling this through my eyes. I, I don't mean it in the way that I'm the only one doing it. There's hundreds of people carrying the load here. Uh, And just out of some crazy political alignment in the summer of 2020, we have a Montana Republican senator, Senator Steve Gaines, and we have a Colorado Republican senator who is Senator Cory Gardner. They were both up for re-election in 2020, November, just whatever, four months ago. And the president... And these two senators get together and they throw the ball out there that we are going to permanently reauthorize and fully fund LWCF with this bill called the Great American Outdoors Act. When that came across my newsfeed, Mark, I'm like, where's the catch? We've been fighting this for, (laughs) I don't know, 1998, so do the math, 22 years. Something's up. That, that's what went through my head. And uh, it got passed. 
And it, you know, and there it were... ties right back to what you're saying about our defensive MVP situation, right? It was yeah. the fact that we had put so much pressure that folks fighting for re-election saw this as, as their golden goose to get in votes, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's uh, if you would have told me that we would uh, in in 2020 that we would have seen the Great American Outdoor Act come forward and get passed by a big majority in both houses and get signed by the president, I would have said, in what world are you living? <laughs> because I just didn't see it coming. But it it did. And it's, I, I don't know if people understand what a remarkable accomplishment that is and how beneficial that will be going forward. If I look in the rear view mirror, of all of the great work that has been done because of that program and the funding it provides, we could be on a podcast for a week. And I don't think I could explain every piece of access that is out there that's been, it's either new access, improved access, expanded access that was brought forth because that pool of money is there. So I just, I'm still laughing at myself thinking, how did that get pulled off? (laughs) Well, you know, an interesting illustration of just how powerful we, the people can be in this is, and I might get the exact number wrong here. Maybe you remember this, Randy, but if I remember correctly, back in January or February of 2020, the, administration came out with its kind of budget proposals for the year and they were recommending something like five percent funding for the land and water conservation fund i mean it was basically 95 percent uh less than it's supposed to be is what they were proposing and then months later you know after what you just described after uh the two senators said hey we need this as a win for us all of a sudden now the administration comes out in support of 100 percent funding (laughs) Uh, and it wasn't like there was this qu- huge change of heart. All of a sudden, they wanted to support public land. It, it was, it was. We need votes, and right. that's because of us. That's because of hunters and anglers and folks that care about these places making a concerted ruckus. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- and that right there proves the power that we can have. Yeah, and some people will say, "Well, it only happened because uh, people were seeking their political salvation." Oh, well, <laughs> I'll take it. If, right. if, if that, that's kind of the unfortunately, you know, the unfortunate way it works in today's world is very often do both sides get together and say, hey, this would be great for America. There's so much political calculus that goes into it, so much paying of political favors that you try to now play the game to position it. So how do we make sure that when political favors are being repaid or when political calculus is being put on the whiteboard, that our issues are part of the consideration and (laughs) take the win when you get it. So I, I, I mean, you were young during the time period I'm going to ask you about, so I don't know how much insight you have or not, but back in the, you know, late 60s and early 70s, a lot of these environmental and public land related issues were, at least if you believe the history books, they were they were bipartisan. They were supported by most everyone. It was a fight to show who was the best for these things. It was, yep. you know, a lot of these really important pieces of legislation were passed or signed underneath Republican presidents, um, mm-hmm. Congress, etc. Um, was it really hunky-dory back then? 
and it, and we'll never be able to get back to it? Or are we actually getting back to what was present last year, which or not last year, but back in the sixties and seventies, which was it was just a political necessity? Like, is the will we ever get back to something like that, or are we getting there? Uh, I think it, it comes and goes, uh, and. I remember being five years old when the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, Ohio started on fire. And you watch that on, uh, back then you had three news networks and everyone tuned in for the six o'clock news. And here are tugboats floating on the river trying to put the, the fire out on the river. That was such a powerful image and such a powerful event that even at five years old, you didn't really understand it, but you sure heard a lot of people talking about it. There were jokes about, you know, this river started on fire or the joke of, you know, only Americans can figure out how to burn water. And so from that, you see these things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the, uh, you know, Public Land Management Acts, it was really the tenor of the times in the late 60s through the 70s. Uh, and then it started changing some again in the in the 80s. And I think you see a generational, you know, every 20 years or so, you see these ebbs and flows in it. And I think we're in one of those times where we're going to start seeing some of that, hopefully, go back. I mean, how many times do we have to see algae blooms kill off you know, hundreds of thousands of fish? How many times do we have to have uh, waterfowl or migratory birds land in a place and they all die from some chemical exposure? Mm-hmm. So we're seeing some of these same symptoms that come and go. Uh, And I'm hoping, I mean, look at all the work we now have found out about, at least in the West, migration corridors. And that migration corridor work is some of the most compelling, some of the most interesting, and some of the most valuable work that has been done in the wildlife sciences in my lifetime. And so here we are, we're back to that and people are paying attention to it and we're, we're making landscape changes. We're adjusting human behavior patterns and human uses on the landscapes to address that. But there's always going to be the other side of the coin where if you read the most recent study on sage grouse, we've lost 80% of our sage grouse since 1990. So there's always the, what are the, you know, the old canary in the coal mine. Uh, And so there's always more to do and the urgency of doing it gets to be greater and greater and greater. And just about all of it comes back to the use of the land, the habitat, the land itself. Uh, You know, (laughs) Aldo Leupold was writing about that in the thirties and forties. Yeah. And here we are today, it, it still applies. And so we've got a ton of work to do, but I think we are building more and more of a resolve to do the hard work. And I'm seeing it in all this stuff related to migration corridors. I think we're going to have to get there with sage grouse. And sometimes the big club that gets used is the threat to, you know, hey, we're going to put them on the endangered species list. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's the last thing you want 
you, 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 if you're in that situation, you now are in such a bad spot. You've, you've let yourself get in, in hot water. So how do we change landscape issues to improve the future for, in this example I'm using, sage grouse? How do we get them back up to where they should be so that someone doesn't have to come and bring the big club? And I do think that a lot of groups, whether they're industry, extraction, resource businesses, uh, the general public, the the, even down to the local level, they have examples to look at to say, boy, when someone comes in and says, this is now an endangered species, we really are out of options and we're going to get told what to do. And hopefully people have learned those lessons along the way and this awareness uh, will continue to grow and, and we'll have a better place for our public lands and our waterways and stuff like that. I, I know it doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen easily, but I do think America, if we're unique in some ways, it's that we do have a lot of value on our wild things and wild places. And we just got to give that voice and, and some political, uh, uh, priority. And, and I, I think, I've seen it in the last few years. I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that, hey, we're the, the pendulum's coming back and let's keep it there as long as we can. Yeah. You mentioned how, you know, so much of what's most important is, you know, what's actually happening on the ground, how these places are being used. And, you know, over the past few years, we've had these big wins like the Great American Outdoors Act and the, the Dingle Jr. Act, which was the year before, which, um, did a lot of good things on these same lines, but at the same time, there has been what, you know, you and I have talked about in the past, this kind of death by a thousand cuts, little things happening behind the scenes yeah. a little bit. And if you weren't yeah. really paying attention, you wouldn't realize that stuff like the sage, sage grouse plan, like there was all this work done over a number of years to develop these compromises around trying to keep the sage grouse off the endangered species list by having some really, um, I don't know if innovative is, is the right word, but like some strong ideas about how everybody can proactively um, move forward with conservation efforts, whether it be ranching or energy or uh, development. There are all these things put in place to make sure there's a conservation plan to keep sage grouse from going further into decline. These were agreed on back in, I can't remember the year, 2016 or something like that. And then yep. over the last few years, the previous administration cut back on a lot of that stuff. And, and so we yep. went, we went down or we went kind of backwards on that. We've gone backwards on things like the Arctic national wildlife refuge being opened up for leasing on the coastal plain. Um, we went yep. backwards on protection for the boundary waters as they started moving forward or allowing permitting on a mine right on the edge of the boundary waters. There's a bunch of things like that that have kind mm -hmm. of moved in the wrong direction. So yep. we were seeing like some top level things that looked really good as far as headlines. And then there were these other things that were much more related to land use, um, et cetera, et cetera, that were less so. Do you feel like, I guess, how do you feel about that side of things? Because we had some, some legislative wins, but we've had a lot of things when it comes to the quality of the environment or how some of these places are being utilized that have been more discouraging. Um, yeah. Where do you feel like things are going on that front? Uh, I think uh, 
and this is the nature of our political system is there are things that can be done by executive or administrative governance. And then there's stuff that requires actual act of Congress. As much as we joke, you know, it'll take an act of Congress. Uh, some of that legis or some of that uh, administrative executive stuff, those are danger areas. That's where we can quickly use ground, lose ground, because there's there's not necessarily the political pressure that can be brought to bear. There is a lot more. <laughs> uh, I don't mean this in a bad way because I have so many great friends who work for land management agencies, but it's easier for someone to exercise their will in that scenario versus something that requires an act of Congress to change it. Uh, so we have definitely taken some steps back uh, as it relates to that. And it's, it's also a function of our system. Um, I do feel that, to, and this is just an observation of my life and how we as our citizens interact in this stuff and how we look at topics and issues in the, I'm going to say in the last 10 years, we have lost most of our local media and, you know, whether it's your local newspaper, your local TV station, and we consume more of our media online. Well, the online media sources we get are more national and not local, not regional. So our issues get framed in these big national R versus D, left versus right, binary discussion. And so people start either ignoring their local issues or they see their local issues for or through the lens of what team am I on? And that's really damaging to a lot of those things you're talking about where before we we started having that if someone were to come and say you know we're gonna significantly manipulate this huge piece of wildlife habitat or this watershed and it was done by an agency or an executive order i i'm pretty sure that people wouldn't have cared what quote-unquote team they were on they would have showed up pissed off and they would have stopped it now it's almost like well i'm on this team so i can't say anything and a big part of what i spend my time trying to convince people is if you are on that team that's even more burden upon you to be the one who speaks up uh and i don't like to make these political discussions and and such but they really are mark you and i see how this plays out that these groups who want to manipulate either landscapes or species or whatever, they've realized that the best way to do that is through our political processes. Because if you do it over here in our Fish and Wildlife Commissions, our uh, you know state environmental quality boards, those people have trained scientists. They have they they know their stuff, and they're more accountable to the citizens. So what do you do? You take the issue and you bring it to a state legislature or you bring it to Congress. And there you've got a citizen legislature, right? They're mostly attorneys or they're whatever else. They don't, they're not subject experts on any of this stuff. So they can easily be swayed to go that direction. And 
all of the work we've done building our mechanisms, our institutions to protect and promote and advocate for things of wild places and wild things, we've got it all set up for commissions and, you know, the Fish, Wildlife, Parks or whoever it is, Clean Water Commission. And all of a sudden they do a 180 on us and we got to fight these things in legislatures and in Congress and we're just really bad at it. And so right now, uh, we got a lot of, uh, <laughs> we need some, uh, what does the NFL call it? OTAs, uh, organized team activities in the off season. <laughs> yeah. we, we got a lot of OTA time here that we got to get up to speed because right now we're not fielding a very good team when it comes to combating that stuff. Uh, and you see it in how some of these steps, how we lost a lot of ground uh, over the last few years. Yeah. So yeah, like you mentioned this, much to you know our dismay, a lot of this stuff has become political. And like you said, one team, I mean, right, historically, at least over the last handful of decades, when the pendulum swings Republican, we're really good on guns, we're good on hunting rights and that kind of stuff, but we are less good on things like the environment and public lands. When yep. it goes the other way, if it swings Democrat, bad on guns and hunting rights, stuff like that, but good mm -hmm. on public lands and the environment. Um, yep. So – we could have a whole nother conversation about gun rights and hunting rights, but, but sticking on the topic of public lands and environment for now, right now, mm -hmm. right. We have a democratic president, Congress, et cetera. Um, that's where the pendulum is right now. Mm -hmm. So at least on the public land and environment side, do you, do we have an opportunity there for those specific issues? And if so, you know, what's, are you optimistic about that over the next few years? What's the opportunity um, what, what should we do to take advantage of, of this, this good part of things? Maybe if, if, if I'm right on that. Yeah. Um, that's one that's shaking out right now as the new administration is putting together their leadership and who's going to fill a lot of the undersecretary positions and the, and the actual people who oversee the departments and the agencies, uh, some of that stuff as I'm watching who's coming through the door, it's like, man, can we ever hit the middle? Yeah. <laughs> you know, before, uh, four years ago, and we're going through this process, it was like the first credential you needed is you had to be a lobbyist for one of the resource industries. And I say that with full disclosure that I come from a logging background. I mean, I, my family, we were resource people, yeah. but that doesn't mean that's the only voice that gets you or the only credential that gets you a position to represent our land management agencies and all the things that go with that. And now I'm looking at some of the nominations at, or not nominations, but some of the appointments at the low, these mid levels, like below the secretary. And it's like, wow, some of these people don't have a very favorable opinion about hunting or what role hunting plays in some of this stuff. And so I, I don't, I'm always, let's give everybody the benefit of the doubt and judge based on the actions. So I'm, I'm a little bit of a wait and see on this at this point. I'm hopeful, you know, like that. I, I, I've always been hopeful. I'm, I'm the optimist. I thought, Four years ago, okay, let me see what are the good values some of these people will bring to the table. Yep. And hopefully they'll this or they'll that, you know, and then if they don't, I'm going to have to 
you know, me and, and all of us in, in involved in this and concerned about it, we're going to have to push back. And the same will be the case here. There will be some of the places where they swing the pendulum. Uh, it, it's like no matter the issue, when we have a change of administration like this from one party to another, the pendulum on every issue is going 180 degrees the other direction. Yeah. So our job is to make sure that pendulum doesn't go all the way out, you know, where it just <laughs> has such a wide stroke that no one's going to be happy because then the next time it comes back the other way even further. And I think if there's one thing, hunters, anglers, those of us connected to the land and landscapes the way we are, we've been more of that moderate level of, hey, we don't need to go way over here. We don't need to go way over there. Let's focus on the land, the water, the clean air, the habitats, and let's find a way to do it. You know, people, if, if you say we want some restrictions or some better mitigation or whatever, instantly people want to say, oh, well, don't you drive a car? Well, yeah, I drive a car. I heat my house with natural gas. What I'm saying is I would pay more to reflect the true costs of what my gas tank and my natural gas and my air conditioner and my electricity I am saying I'm willing to pay more because I see the impact out on the landscape. Yeah. And I think my generation has a responsibility to pay for it rather than abuse it and hand a, a, a desolate landscape off to the next generation. That's what we're saying when we ask for restraints and guidelines and, and actual <laughs> science and, and consideration for the bigger picture. And that's a harder place to advocate for because the fringe on either side can just say, Oh, you're against this or you're mm -hmm. against that. You're... No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here for the, the sane middle. I'd like to think. Uh, yeah. So. A, a, a party that rarely gets heard, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And so what's that look like going forward? You know, if we have this conversation in four years, it'll be interesting to look back in the rearview mirror and say, hmm, I didn't see that coming. Or, yeah, I knew that was coming. Or, all right, yeah, we got that problem fixed. Or we put this in place. And uh, well, I, I, it, the, the thing I realize in my years of doing this now is that the – and this goes back to this nationalizing of our issues, right? You you framed it very well, Mark, where the Democrats are known to be uh, friendlier to the landscape and the water and the air, and the Republicans are want to be known as, you know what, we protect your guns, your blah, 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 whatever. I work with a lot of people who almost cross that divide. The, uh, and I'll give an example. Congressman Mike Simpson from Idaho yeah. submits a bill after 20-some years of work to say, let's breach the dams on the Lower Snake River because it's ruining salmon and steelhead habitat. It is, we're going to lose these species and these runs if we don't do something more. And we've skirted around the edges for so long. I'm here. I'm willing to introduce a bill that's going to cost us $30 billion over the next, I don't know, decade or two. So if we were to say all Republicans are, you know, painted this way, where does that leave? What, then, then there's no place for a Mike Simpson of the world. Yep. 
And the flip side, Senator Martin Heinrich, Senator John Tester, you're not going to pass any gun control through the Senate with those two uh, in a 50 50 Senate with those two guys there because they're very good on guns. So if we say every Democrat is whatever on guns, where does that leave Tester and Heinrich? Yep. So I, I used to, <laughs> it's so much easier to view it through the binary good or bad, you know, left, right, RD, but every piece of progress we've ever made, whether it's moving the ball forward or keeping the, the dozers from pushing us back, it's been because we had people on both sides yeah. who, who were willing to, to listen. Yeah, the the rub then is how do we create more people like that <laughs> and get yeah, them into get them into office? That's what I'm always. That, I would say that occupies more of my time right now, Mark, than any of this policy stuff because right now we have state legislatures in session in Michigan. Are you guys a year round legislature? I I'm honestly not sure about that, Randy. Okay. Well, in Montana, we're biannual. So every two years, they meet for 90 days. And we wish that they met for two days every 90 years <laughs> because it's, it's always chaos. And I look at the legislatures are in session in Idaho and Wyoming, Colorado, and you know, pretty much every state I look around, legislatures are in session. And we have this tenor this this extremism on both sides that is not reflective of what got us here and i don't care if it's our issues whatever issues it is and so you're back to your question of how do we get more of those people to the table or how do we get more of those people elected that's the riddle we have to solve because uh, uh, we, we can fight this game to the ends of time but really, we got to get to the core of it. And the core of it is how do we get the elected people to understand our case and represent our cause? Or how do we, I mean, if they don't already understand it, how do we get them to understand it? Or how do we get people elected who bring that perspective with them when they go there? So easier said than done, considering yeah. how much it costs to, to play in the election space. And, and I mean, today's world. Yeah. From, from my uneducated perspective, it seems like what you get is when you get down to like the, the primary level or the state legislature level, mm -hmm. the, the majority of the voters that are active when it's at that level tend to be mm -hmm. those that are really, really engaged. And yep. that might mean that they are a little bit farther left or farther right. So the people yep. that are making the decisions about who gets into gets to that level of the conversation, the people that are voting at that level, they're pushing it farther and farther to the outside. And yeah. by the time you can, if you can get through that filter, the only people that made it past that point up to the national level have already been screened by the extremists <laughs> on either side. And so you only get people that are catering to the far of far side of each base. You never yeah. get the moderate, a moderate can early rarely or, or less common than otherwise. You can't get, with a moderate set of positions up to the level we're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. Not that there aren't exceptions. There are, as you described, but it just seems right. harder and harder to do that. So is, is the solution that we have to start getting really active at that local or state or, or active in the primary level of things to start getting something going yep. there? Yep, it does. And that's, that's what hunters don't want to hear. 
they don't want to, <laughs> they don't like politics, first of all. The, they're common sense people who say, why should we even have to fight and argue about this stuff? It's common sense. But that's the reality we're faced with. And then if you look at a map, I bet you if you took a map of Montana, I have, I've looked at the Montana one, and if you looked at a similar map in Michigan, you would say, how did they come up with this geographic boundary for House District whatever mm-hmm. or Senate District whatever? Well, through gerrymandering, they all get together and say, well, we need X number of districts that are just super safe Democratic districts and super safe Republican districts. Yeah. Well, as quick as you do that, you don't need any debate in that district. You know who's going to carry the day. It's going to be the R or the D just because of how they got together and and arranged the district. So, again, you get the craziest fringe people possible. And that's why if if there is any place of moderation in our politics, it probably is the U.S. Senate, as much as some wouldn't believe that, because U.S. Senate races aren't gerrymandered. You have to appeal to the entire population of your of your state. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, they now cost fifty to what, uh, fifty to a hundred million per side. <laughs> but your point of are we going to have to start getting more engaged? Yes, absolutely. It's it's going to become part of the the. the it should almost be part of training in in hunter education and i mean on our platforms this spring we've started a a series called civics for hunters because i've been spending so much time on this stuff i've been to helena multiple times phone calls meetings it's uh, i'm in my head i'm like i i don't have this much time and i (laughs) i feel like it's david and goliath for all of us who are trying to fight this and I'm thinking, all right, how do we educate our audiences about, one, what's at stake, how we got to where we are today, and how we can get out of this? And it every answer involves some of what you referred to, and that's hunters are going to have to become more political, act, politically active. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry 
if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. All right, so with that being the case, <laughs> the trick is always like knowing where to focus because yep. I try to stay pretty darn up on all this stuff and even I can't and, and it's my job. Um, the yep. average person out there has got a million other things going on and they can only devote so much time to, to reading about these things, getting educated, spending time calling people, et cetera, et cetera. So, yep. so if we're just looking at the next three and a half years, let's just focus on like what's happening now, who's, who's in office right now and continue with the, the kind of football analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about what is your top priority from an offensive perspective for us. So what's one opportunity that we can focus on going out and getting? And then what is one defensive priority? What's one thing we really need to be careful to make sure we don't get attacked on or get a big loss on? Is there two things that may pop to mind that we can yeah. think about? Yeah, I, I think offensively, if we could get back to more uh, CRP, Conservation Reserve Program, uh, National Wet, or, uh, NACWA, uh, Wetlands Conservation Act, uh, funding for wetlands easements, uh, those do unbelievable things for our ag producers. Uh, you know, when you get in a trade war with China, you don't lose your CRP payment. Yep. You, you know, your soybean or your corn or your grain payments might go down. And you look at the amount of money we've spent in the last however many years propping back up prices because of trade wars related to agriculture. And now producers, because of those super thin margins, have to farm every single inch. There's no fence rows. There's no hedge rows. There's, there's nothing left out there. Yeah, we, we can see that in whitetail country for sure. Yeah. And so how do we convince uh, our elected officials that this is good for small town? This is good for the farmer and the ag producer. It's good for the land. It's good for the water. It's good for wildlife. It's good for all of us. Somehow along the way, these type of conservation programs got thrown under the bus in the polit- got run through the political machine. So if I was a if, if I was allowed to diagram what our game plan would be, I would say let's get let's go on offense with more conservation funding that helps the people on the ground. Let's pay them to do the right thing. And and right by everybody, right by the land, right right for themselves. And let's quit having to spend so much money on tariff or to uh, price supports because of tariffs and all the, I mean, that's such a complicated discussion, but suffice to say, in its simplified manner, it costs us billions and billions and billions of dollars when we get in trade wars that involve ag products. Are there other ways we could be reallocating some of that money, taking some of the land out of production, which would bring prices back up? in just about every model 
we'd have to pay less in price supports that could go to CRP and, you know, whatever the program is. There's wetlands, there's there's the old, uh, what is it, the uh, WIP program, I think it was called. Yeah, there's WREP, there's... <laughs> yeah, there, there's all kinds of those programs. And we have lost so many of those over the years. And, uh, you know, CRP, everyone says, oh, that's really good for birds. Guess what? It's some of the best deer program, the best deer habitat in the northern plains, uh, the foothills of the Rockies, a lot of that was CRP ground. That's when we had our best deer hunting, uh, best bird hunting, songbirds, you, you name it, our water quality, the whole work. So from an offensive standpoint, I, that's where I would like to see us go. And that's a that's a farm bill conversation for for yep. folks that aren't familiar. That's those yep. programs are all part of the farm bill, which which I think the next farm bill uh, comes up in twenty twenty three. Is that right, Randy? Do you know? I th- I'm pretty sure uh, that's when it comes I, up. Yeah, I should know that. Uh, I think you're right on that, Mark. I, I'd have to look it up and see. Um, so to me, that's that is where we should be on the offense. Uh, on the defense, I think we're, we're going to have to think about, and, and I'm trying to think of how to say this without it coming across weird, but, uh, we have so many instances where people are going to try to chisel around the edges, uh, whether it's, let me divert some of the land and water conservation funds. Let me change how funding of Pittman Robertson happens or how the money can be used. Let me divert some of this. Let me do some of that. Let's get, let's change the tax code so that conservation easements are no longer allowed. Right now in the Montana legislature, we are battling all kinds of conservation easement mm-hmm. restrictions. That, and you look at that and you say, where does this come from? Well, Where it comes from is there are groups on the national level, very, very conservative groups who do not like what they call the law of perpetuities Uh, in a conservation easement is I'm going to restrict the use of my property in perpetuity. Some people say that's just a complete violation of everything they believe to be the case for property rights. Because whoever inherits or buys that property or takes it over, takes it subject to that perpetual restriction. And so I, I use that as one example where the tax code is used to chisel around the edges. Uh, budget processes are used to chisel around the edges. Those are things that it, it goes back to that death by a thousand cuts, Mark, where people are like, well, how do I know about all this? How, how am I supposed to stay informed? Well, that's part of what the value you get when you become a member of the many, many national or state groups. And I know people don't want to check that box that says, keep me informed. Please check that box when you sign up with your membership to say, please keep me informed. Because that's part of what they're doing. They're making you aware of these kind of things. Yesterday, I got an email from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation that said, hey, alert, there's a bill in the Montana legislature that says nonprofit organizations cannot buy farm ground of more than 80 acres. Uh-huh. I was just reading about this today. Yeah. Well, that means every public land access program we had and that we've built in Montana that got us 
uh, new Forest Service access, new uh, BLM accesses, uh, whether it, and here's how it normally happens. Army F goes and buys 300 acres that has access to 30,000 acres. And RMEF takes that 300 acres and gives it to a state agency or gives it to the federal, you know, the BLM or Forest Service. So they only hold it momentarily, but they're the actual transaction party who puts it all together, brings all the funding sources, and as quick as they get it done, they immediately turn it over to an agency. Same with the Nature Conservancy, same with the Trust for Public Lands. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of acres of access that we have lost or that we will lose if bills like that happen. And it's great that these groups, whether it's Army, FBHA, Trout Unlimited, TRCP, it's great that they're notifying of a, notifying us of this stuff because we got to act. We got to speak out. And that always brings the next question of, well, no one's going to listen to me. Yeah, they will. If you and enough of your friends email or, or call your senator or your legislator, your state legislator, your, your Congress person. <laughs> it doesn't take too many to get their attention. And I would tell everyone in your phone, you should have the Capitol switchboard number at the U.S. Capitol, 202-224-3121. And you should have the same Capitol switchboard number in your phone for your state legislature. And don't give them a break. And I know people say, oh, they're not going to listen to me. They listen to you. Trust me on this. It's just that if we have this defeatist attitude that no one's paying attention, no one cares about what I have to say, so I'm not going to call, I'm not going to email. Well, they're not mind readers. Why do you think Jason Chavitz withdrew his bill to sell all that public land in, when was that, 2017 or 18? Yep, yep. Because people picked up the phone and people made it or, or sent emails. So don't, don't say that they don't listen. They do. It's just that we too often have the defeatist attitude that they're not going to listen. And we use that as our excuse of why we're not going to engage. Yeah. So, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, you mentioned how it's, how it, it can be painful for us as hunters to have to get involved at the local level or at the state level because we don't want to get into this nasty civics politics kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But the the one upside is that at that level, each individual voice matters more. You know, I yeah. mean, at that level, these people, if they hear from a thousand people, that is overwhelming. Let, you yeah. know, compared to at the national level, maybe they hear from hundreds of thousands of people at times. You know, we mm -hmm. do have greater influence at this level. Um, but you brought up these examples in Montana and I don't know if it's just cause I'm tuned into it more or if it's for real. It just feels like there's a lot of stuff coming out of Montana right now. Stuff like that, that <laughs> bill you just mentioned, all the things related to, to predators, um, everything around yeah. the, the, the game commission right now, these different, uh, hunting, you know, uh, whether yeah, non-resident allocations of tags and outfitter, yep. Um, preference and, and there's a lot of stuff happening. Um, yep. What's going on in Montana? Well, I mean, Andrew yeah. McKean was denied a commission. Mm -hmm. um, what's going on in your state, right? Yeah. So 
Andrew, you know, he was appointed to fill one of the positions, uh, one of the five positions of our Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Commission. Uh, great guy. I mean, those of you who know Andrew from his days, he was the uh, editor at Outdoor Life. Just such an articulate, thought, thought-out, well-spoken guy. So, and I'm going to use Andrew as the example that is, that is the symptom of the disease we have here in Montana. And it's not just in Montana. I think when I explain it this way, people will see it's widespread. Uh, Andrew, the, the, we get a new governor, get a new legislature, and they have to renew Andrew's position. The state Senate does. Uh, so it goes to the Senate Fish and Game Committee. There's a hearing on his appointment, and there wasn't one single piece of testimony, either in person, on, and we're doing Zoom testimony here also, uh, that was against Andrew. Not one. And I don't know of anybody who wrote the commission or wrote the Senate and said, I don't like Andrew. He lost on a purely partisan vote. Seven Republicans voted against him and four voted for him, four Democrats. And after the vote, the chairman of that committee gets up and says, it's a new day in town and we're going to do what the governor wants us to do. In other words, hell with all you people that sent us here. Hell with all of you who commented and testified. We're, we're here to do what we want to do. And some would say, Randy, that flies in the face of what you just said a little bit ago about they listened to us. Well, the, the, they, listened, they listened to you more if you're active. Let's put it that way. Uh, and so what's the, what's, what's the reality of what we're dealing with in Montana? Well, what we're dealing with in Montana is we have, oh, over the course of years, what you were talking about how, you know, you can get very active people and you get the far fringe of one side and the far fringe of the other. And that's what we have in Montana right now. We have a supermajority of one party that has a supermajority in the House, supermajority in the Senate, owns the governor's seat and all of the other four statewide offices. And so the crazies are having their go of it right now. But even within that supermajority group, there are some sane people. I'm talking to them all the time. And they're like, Randy, we're trying our best, man. But <laughs> your people got to weigh in. Where are the hunters on this? We need emails. We need phone calls. Get them here. And these are people within that party who are saying, we're, you know, there's only eight or 10 of us. We're, we're on your side but you better show up or you're going to get wiped out. So right now we're seeing the whiplash effect. And some folks would say, how is it Montana used to have two Democratic senators and you had 16 years of Democratic governors? What we saw in the 2020 election was the trend I identified earlier of the nationalization of our elections. We had... Hardly any local news coverage that people were consuming. I mean, it was there, but people aren't consuming it. People are watching the national cable news networks. They're, they believe that Facebook is news, so they're getting it from social media. Mm -hmm. And so 
We've lost all the nuance of how this stuff applies to Montana. And it became an election of anyone with a D next to him was the reincarnation of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Mm -hmm. When most of our D's here in Montana would be considered pretty right of center folks in Connecticut or New York or California or wherever. But, the, the, and I'm not saying that, you know, woe is me or this or that. I'm just saying these are lessons we can look at and say, this is what happens when we lose any local or regional media of substance. This is what happens when we get lazy as a voting public and say, someone make up my mind for me. Let the algorithm of Facebook tell me what news I should consume, which most of it is not even news. It's paid sponsored BS and on both sides. That's what we, in 2020, we kind of got the government we voted for. The government we deserve, because if we're going to be that lazy that we're not going to go out and find our own independent media sources, if we're that tight that we'll spend $100 a month at the coffee shop, but we won't spend $5 for a subscription to our local newspapers that's actually talking about the issues that are going to affect us, if we're so lazy that we're going to let Facebook or Google or whoever tell us what really is the news or how the news should be spun, well, we're going to end up with these kind of outcomes. So I, <laughs> I know some people be like, Newberry, that is way out in the weeds. <laughs> but it's, it's what I saw happen here in Montana. And so, yeah, everyone <laughs> outside of Montana is calling what, what, what are you guys drinking out there this legislative session? And it's just, we, it's a perfect storm of where we have gerrymandered our districts. We have disengaged from the primary process. Something you brought up earlier is being super important. And now we got the crazies. It's crazies on one side against crazies on the other. And I'm not saying they're all crazy, but yeah, yeah. the ones who, the ones who get voted to the leadership within these caucuses are pretty fringe. Whereas the, the, the rest of them are, you know, they're, they're trying to do what they think is good. Uh, but there's some very politically ambitious people who get into this process for the power that they can obtain. And they've realized the farther out on the fringe I get, in, a, in an environment like this, the greater my voice. Yep. Even though the rank and file person on Main Street is like, what the heck is that person thinking? Yeah, I voted for him, but man, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. Well, if you voted for him and you're having that feeling of what is this person doing, please call them and say, or email them and say, hey, I voted for you, but I think this is a stupid idea. Just because you vote for someone, this is another thing in the American tradition that is new. People are of the opinion that if I voted for this person, I can't push back on them. My comment is you're the one who should push back on them. You're the one who can hold them more accountable than anybody else because they know that you're, the, you're part of the reason you and people like you who think like you are how they got elected. So I think it's more important for people within those groups to push back on the folks they voted for. Yeah. So. Yeah. So so a lot of the stuff we talked about, it's mm -hmm. it, it 
it seems like a, a lot of where things are headed is, is needing to get more engaged at a deeper level sooner than maybe historically we have. So I want to talk, yep. I want to kind of shift to a few more issues or more mm-hmm. specific issues that might be things, at least that have been on my radar, that that maybe we could just learn a little bit more that folks can keep tabs on when it comes to public land stuff. Um, yeah. One of them you brought up earlier, which is migration corridor um, mm-hmm. issues. And there's been a lot of interesting studies you mentioned. There's been, uh, I think, a lot of insights as far as how animals use these wider landscapes than maybe we realize. Like a, a pronghorn or a mule deer or an elk does not realize that the borders of Yellowstone National Park only go to here or that the <laughs> national forests go to there, right? They don't operate on that kind of scale. Um, yep. Same thing with bears or wolves. Um, but there was a there's a piece of legislation that legislation that passed the House last year um, called the Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious if you know anything more about the future of that or or anything else related to migration corridors or the protection of you know these connective tissues that that allow animals to move from this protected area to that protective area or anything on your radar related to that? Because I think that it's seeming like that's becoming more and more important for the long-term health of wildlife as, as so much of our wild spaces are being developed or cut down or, or, or whatever, just as human pressure pushes on all sides you look at your home turf there in the greater yellowstone ecosystem right i mean Mm -hmm. bozeman and idaho falls and all these different towns more and more people growing 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 um you're just seeing these spaces slowly being chipped away at and finding ways to to allow wildlife to still be able to move where they need to seems increasingly important um what's what's on your radar on that front yeah, well, uh, you bring up a really cool piece of legislation, Mark, the Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act. The benefit of it was it w- it had a sponsor from each side of the aisle. So it was not a real contentious bill, but it died due to the bigger picture of politics of, well, we don't want this person to have a win because if they get a win, you know, we got an election coming up and the fall of 2020. So I'm hopeful that either this bill or parts of it will end up in possibly the infrastructure or the transportation bill that the current administration is going to put forward. Because a lot of these corridor things are related to highways, bridges, stuff like that, Mm -hmm. development. Uh, There is already talk at the federal agency level to move uh, corridor studies and funding and planning to higher levels. So that can, that part of it can be done just through administrative rule or through management of the agencies. But actual funding for more research, for more mitigation, that's going to come from Congress. And uh, I think that, that bill there, uh, even if there, you know, there's always some piece that somebody doesn't like okay if we got to get rid of some little piece of that okay let's not let perfection get in the way of progress and let's get it passed because we're talking about so many critical things here and the the amount of 
uh, what would I say, elasticity to the landscape and to these migration corridors is not very high. And the margin for error that we have today compared to 30, 50 years ago is nowhere near what it was back then. We got to get this right and we got to do it quickly. So with a bill like that, uh, I just, if anyone's interested, go Google the Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act. Uh, see who the sponsors were and, uh, you know, reach out to your legislative, uh, your, your uh, caucus or, or your uh, delegation and tell them that you support that bill. And however it gets, whether it's that bill itself or it's something similar to that, you know, in the transportation bill, the infrastructure bill, let people know. And uh, you'd be surprised how often, you know, eight or 10 people email on the same thing. And all of a sudden you get a staffer calls and says, hey, what's going on with this? We, you know, all of a sudden we started hearing that people are concerned about the migration corridor for pronghorn. Oh, well, here's what it is. Oh, we didn't know that. Let, let's make sure that gets put in the highway bill. Or the transportation bill. Yeah. Uh, it's how that stuff works. I know it sounds like ninth grade civics, and it really is. But uh, it, it's a bill like that. or uh, and Because often what we see is a bill comes forward. And anytime you introduce something, that's when you identify who are the people who don't like parts of it. And you hear why they don't like parts of it. Okay, maybe we didn't get it past this Congress or the next Congress or this legislative session. There are parts in it that are not controversial, so let's get those pieces going forward. Because wildlife corridors, once they're gone, all the study shows that animals don't relearn their migration. They, they stop once the corridors are gone. Usually the population disappears, and you can re, you know, relocate or translocate new members of that species, but they don't have the learned uh, behavior to conduct the migrations. And so once they're lost, if, if a migration was an organism, it would be extinct once that corridor is gone. And in some of these corridors, we're talking, you know, a half mile wide. So when we're allocating our conservation funding dollars, that half mile wide gap where 10,000 elk migrate out of Yellowstone we might want to think about that because if that half mile wide gap disappears, so does that migration. And so does probably that herd of elk and uh, all the other species dependent upon them. Mm -hmm. So if, if I remember right, Randy, and I want you to fill in the gaps here, but if I remember right, some of the things included in that bill would have been funding for stuff like wildlife overpasses, you know, the bridges yep. that go over highways so that animals can cross roads. There would be, mm -hmm. uh, funding for conservation easements, I think on private land that would make sure that some of these important areas didn't get developed and they stay open for wildlife. Um, mm -hmm. I think there was something in there about prioritizing, like if we are going to do any land acquisition for growing public land pieces, these connective tissue kind of areas would be prioritized. I think there was something like that. It, what yeah. else is in that bill or that type of bill that we should be thinking about uh, advocating for, telling our our representatives like, hey, we support this tactic or this specific thing? Is there anything you can recall? Yeah. Uh, I didn't think it was enough money. I think it was only $50 million and people are going to be like, what? 
that's a lot of money. But when you think about the cost of, of doing this, uh, you earlier said that wildlife, when it leaves, it doesn't know when it crossed one boundary to another. Mm-hmm. A lot of these critical migration corridors go through private land or through tribal lands or whatever. If there's a private land steward out there who has done a remarkable job of maintaining their landscape and preserved this migration corridor, seems to me we should we would be well served to go and pe- buy an easement from them to say this corridor here we want you get to keep the land, but we want to buy any development rights, any in, any surface impact rights. To, for you to keep that open for wildlife and and we'll pay you full market value and you get to keep the land that the, so that was one of the things that was in there and it got some blowback of well you know if they don't allow us public access we shouldn't we shouldn't be spending the money <laughs> yes we should because <laughs> that might be a mule deer herd or elk or what you know who knows what it might be moose or that are migrating from this wintering public lands to these summering public lands and the critical pinch points in their migration might be on private. So uh, that was uh, one of the things that was in there. A lot of it was building uh, a database about wildlife connectivity. And some people are concerned about a big national database about wildlife connectivity. In other words, how do migration corridors connect wildlife species to their winter rangers, their summer rangers? What are these transition ranges? Because they're like, well, if they do that study and my private land ends up being one of the critical corridors, you know, is that going to put me on some target list or, you know, am I going to no longer be able to exercise my property rights? Stuff, Stuff like that. It's... Some of those, in my mind, are straw man arguments, uh, but that's it's stuff like that that was in there. Uh, a lot of times, there's also just fencing, where you can put fencing along these places where there's known migrations to keep them from crossing in random spots, and you force them to use an underpass or an overpass because it, the fence acts like a funnel, and you keep them, you, you, you reduce collisions significantly, which affects the population and, and the survival of the population. But we also got to look at the bigger picture of what are we doing to allow them to naturally go where they've always went. Uh, there's studies going on in Arizona about Interstate 40 and how their pronghorn used to move a lot. And now that they collar them, you see where they're moving north and south until they hit I-40. And then they just move east and west because it's that much of an impairment, yeah. impediment to their travel. So uh, that bill would have had stuff like that. And it was money and, and directive to say, let's not allow for any more habitat fragmentation or loss. And it would have provided a lot of granting to states because a lot of the state highways and and stuff like that, or a lot of the state wildlife agencies know where this stuff is. So, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting stuff. And it, it makes a lot of sense. And, and, And I've been reading a lot about this idea called Island Biogeography. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which you're, you might be already aware, but for folks listening, just it's, it's kind of looking at the way that wildlife populations 
thrive and evolve and and um, move forward in constrained areas, like like an island. But the, when you study wildlife on an island, you see something that's very similar to what happens in a region that functionally is an island, like we'll say the Yellowstone ecosystem, which is uh, a central ecosystem of, of all this protected land surrounded by, you know, development cities, open country that's used in other, in other ways. And so certain wildlife species essentially can't connect with another island of other protected land. Let's, let's say it's the island of Yellowstone and then the island of the northern Rockies um, up in Glacier National Park, Bob Marshall, that kind of thing. Like there's, there's a lot of talk mm-hmm. about how do you connect these places so that there can be transfer across from one to the other. Because if, if we get these islands like that, that keep getting cut away on the edge, just death by a thousand cuts, they keep getting smaller mm-hmm. and smaller. And the border on the outside, while not a physical wall – becomes a stronger and stronger border because now instead of, you know, thousands of acres of open rangeland or farms that the wildlife would use, maybe now it's becoming little ranchettes and housing developments and malls and all that. So this whole thing with migration and connectivity, it just seems like, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, it's just going to get more and more important as we see people racing to develop our areas around public lands racing to live in these places, right? The whole COVID migration, when we're talking migration, like everyone is leaving the cities and moving to Montana and Idaho and Wyoming. Like this yep. is only going to get worse. So I think yep. that that's something at least that I personally am like following much more closely now and, and, and hoping there can be some positive movement on because of those pressures. Yeah. And you know, the, a good example of those are the, they call them the, the sky Island mountain rangers of arizona yeah you have all sorts of different species of squirrels there because they've not been able to connect to the other mountain rangers uh it's because they're you know here's a ten thousand foot mountain with a few other ancillary peaks and then you got nothing but desert for 50 miles before you get to the next mountain range you go down there and you see it in effect in arizona in a big way but the other thing that that theory applies to is the resiliency of the species in changing conditions, whether it's climatic change, whether it's changes to invasive species, uh, plant species or other species on their small island landscapes. Even it's not truly an island, like you said, from the standpoint of, oh, it's surrounded by water. It's surrounded by non-favorable habitat. And the smaller it is and the less access they have to other islands, the more vulnerable they are to other other pressures and other changes that are happening. Yeah. So what happens when uh, fires get worse? What happens when, mm-hmm. you know, uh, eco regions within a habitat start moving higher and higher in elevation because it's warmer? Um, there's yep. all sorts of things that become of concern then. Yeah. Um. Kind of along sort of the same lines, at least when it comes to, you know, focusing where do we focus our protective efforts or where do we try to grow conservation easements or public land, whatever it might be. There's another big fancy initiative that has been talked about more and more recently, especially the last few months. And I'm curious about your take on it. Uh, And that's the 30 by 30 initiative. Um, Mm -hmm. Could you give folks 
could you give folks a really quick rundown of of what I'm, I'm assuming your fingers on the pulse of this, what, yeah. what your thoughts are on like what it is and what your thoughts are and, and kind of where should we be thinking about things as a hunting and fishing community? Um, what's your, what's your take? Yeah. And what it is, the 30 by 30 comes from 30% by the year 2030. Is that what you're referring to? Yep. Yeah. And uh, it's an effort that says we would want to conserve 30% of the U.S. landmass by 2030. And I was like, okay, right now we're at, depends on how you look at it. Uh, you know, I don't know what percentage you hear arguments about how much we've currently conserved. Some people say there isn't even enough remaining land to get to 30%. I think those are just critics who, they, instead of finding the way to yes, they want to find the way to no. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but it's ambitious, and instantly because it's you know the current administration, it's a policy they support. You're going to have some people who just hate it by default. Well, whatever. But we're talking about conserving large landscapes. And we're talking about some of the most endangered landscapes in America aren't the Rocky Mountain West. Yeah, they might have the largest host of our real, you know, warm and cuddly (laughs) megafauna. But some of the most endangered landscapes are in the east, the southeast, the Midwest. And... The low-hanging fruit of conservation has already been plucked, and most of that is our public lands. We got a ton of work that needs to be done to protect critical conservation on private lands. And if we have to give incentives or do whatever to help meet this 30 by 30, as aggressive as that is, I think, in today's political environment, we're going to have to look at how we do some of this on private land too, because that's where it's harder to do. You have many multiple stakeholders, you have private landowners who have property rights. So you got to consider. Uh, I think it's a cool idea. Uh, I'd like to see more details of, you know, exactly how, how does it get funded? How does it get implemented? How do we figure out what places are the, you know, the, the next uh, on the on the list, you know, how how do we prioritize uh, stuff like that? But it's it caught some people off guard uh, because I think there's been a an acceptance that the pie is always going to shrink. So let's figure out how we fight over a shrinking pie. And along comes this idea that is more of a let's not accept the fact that the pie is going to shrink. Let's try to make the pie bigger, or the pie of conserved lands. Yeah. Uh, and I don't care what party you come from. I don't care what your political basis is. The United States, in its history of the last 150 years, has definitely been a country, a culture, a society that believes in building the bigger pie. Now, we can say we've had our, it's like our stock portfolio, right? We've had times where it's blipped down and pop back up. I think you'd have a hard time because the, the corollary to this or the flip side of it is, okay, let's try to get to 5% by 45. You know, let, let's see if we can destroy more of it by 2035 or 45. 
And so when you say it in that context, it's like, well, that'd be stupid. Right, it would be. So if that's stupid, why isn't it smart to try conserve more? And, you know, 30 by 30, uh, I get it. You know, you got to put some markers out there and have some goals and whatever. But the fact that we're talking about it and trying to conserve more land, more water, more watersheds, and we've said, let's be aggressive and try to do it by some date. Hey, even if it doesn't meet all that, for those of us who love wild places, wild things, want clean air and clean water, it's an effort that is headed the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really am bullish, bullish on it, I think. And like you said, there's a lot of, a lot that has to be sorted out in the details. And we have to be, I think, really vocal in how this stuff happens to make sure that, you know, that the hunting and fishing community's perspective is heard on whatever ends up happening. Right. I I think that's important, but for so long, we've been on the defensive. Yep. Here's a chance to be an offense. Like Mm -hmm. let's run with that. Let's push the ball forward because you look at the big story of you know, America the last 150 years, and it's just less and less and less wild places, less and less wilderness, more and more development, more and more species lost. Um, you know, we got to reverse the, we got to reverse the trend. We got at least try. And here's a proposal to, to try to do that. Um, I think that's someplace that, you know, we hunters are perfectly positioned to, to lead on. Um, mm-hmm. given the fact that, as you've said, like oftentimes we are kind of middle of the spectrum, we can speak to the realities of both sides and we can speak to a, a middle ground that can take us forward. Um, it's just harder to do that. It seems like it's really easy. I think the thing we saw with the, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong on this because you're way deeper into this than I am, but it seemed like with the land transfer movement and everything like there, it's really easy to get people pissed off and fired up enough to do something when you say, we're going to take something away from you. Yep. Like, <laughs> right. That's easy to get someone fired up. But it's, it's harder to get someone fired up when we say, hey, if you work really hard, you can get this new thing. Um, yep. That's a harder thing to sell. Um, if we can somehow move in that direction, though, like, God, there's some good stuff that could come of this. Um I'm I'm just I'm hopeful. I hope that yeah. we can. I hope it's something that we can put some concrete details around. That we can have a a voice at the table. That we can try to staunch the the bleeding that's happened in, in a lot of different ways over the last thirty, forty, fifty, hundred years. Um, you know, we can be the solution. Oh, for sure. And anyone who doubts that that sentiment is not there to do better and to improve the landscapes and conserve more. Uh, Colorado College, hardly a a bastion of, uh, you know, ivory towers. This is known to be, you know, it's where a lot of the mining and engineering and other graduates come out of the Colorado systems. And uh, they do a a survey. Uh, It's uh, called this, I think it's called Conservation in the West Pole. They've been doing it for quite a while now. And uh, 72 or 73% of the Western residents in, or the residents of Western states said that they are in favor of the ideas that underpin this 30 by 30 goal. 
Well, that's that's the, I mean, when you're at over 70 percent of support for something, that's you don't have to worry about a poll having a bad margin of error <laughs> at that point. You know, that's so the 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 sentiment among the people living on the landscape is there. The question is, can we convert that to action among our elected bodies and our institutions? And I hope we can, because I, you know, when people tell me, well, I, I don't know about that, that it, it, I don't trust those people. It's like, okay, so you want dirtier air? You want dirtier water? You want fewer fish? You want fewer elk? You want less public land? You want worse habitat? And they usually, they're like, can we talk about football? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, oh. it, it's, it's, there's that Leopold quote when he said the, the danger of, uh, you know, having a, an ecologist education is living alone in a world of wounds, something like that, yeah. which basically yeah. is like, the more you're paying attention to this stuff, the more you realize how much damage has been done. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, over the last decade, as I've started studying more and more of this and, you know, you just see how much stuff has changed since 50 years ago or, or 80 years ago. And you'd, I don't know, I just keep going back to if, if we don't take a stand, you know, our kids are not going to have the same opportunities we had. They won't have the same places we had. Um, and, and I think coming kind of full circle, our whole conversation, like here's this opportunity, but because it's being presented by one side of the aisle, the impulse is, wow, no way this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a poison pill. Um, Let's yeah. make sure it isn't. Let's be so damn loud and involved. Let's make sure that this is just as much of a Republican plan as a Democratic. Like, let's push yep. on our side or whatever side you feel like you are on and say, hey, no, own this. You own this. Let's all own this. Let's make sure that this is a bipartisan thing. Let's make sure that this is something that three years from now, Democrats and Republicans are fighting over who can be the best on conserving more land um, so they can get elected or reelected. Um, we're kind of at the stage in this whole issue that I, th I think that we can still influence, you know, what it actually looks like on the ground. So it, it seems like a great opportunity. Oh, it is. And, and even if it doesn't become 30 by 30, if it takes some other name or some other form, I don't really care. You can call it the, you know, <laughs> blue skies and rainbows bill. Yeah. I, it doesn't matter to me what I care about. And I don't care who sponsors it. I care about the fact that it would put priority. It would put funding. It would give guidance to agencies that this is something we need to consider in all of our land management decisions. And we are going to make the affirmative statement that we're here to instead of play defense on these conservation issues, we're going to play some offense. Yeah. And I like, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's on us. I mean, it, the, all these things, all these places, if we, if we fight the fight and, and win, we're probably going to fight the fight again five years from now or 10 years from now, if yeah. we fight the fight and lose, it's usually gone forever. So mm -hmm. when it comes to these places or, or these protections, 
it's it's something that we just have to keep on keeping on. And if you ever have the opportunity to switch from defense to offense, like, gosh, it just seems like you got to jump on it. And it seems like there's a little sliver of opportunity in this area to go on offense. Now, with that, right, as we talked about earlier, there's all these other places that now we have to play heavy defense. Um, and that's a whole other story. But in this case, let's, let's move on this one. Now, yeah. there's one other kind of pivot that I want to get your thoughts on real quick before we run out of your time. And thank sure. you for, for for letting me drone on and ask pick your brain about all these things. Um, and this isn't really as much well, – maybe it's a little bit. It's not as much like public land policy, but it's more public land use. Something that mm-hmm. a lot of people saw over the last year with the whole COVID impact. But I think it was just uh, – this is something that's been happening over years and years, but COVID just emphasized it. It's, it's the fact that we're loving our public lands to death in some cases. Yep. Right. There was this overcrowding in a lot of places. There was more new people coming to these landscapes, which was great, but also maybe not understanding the etiquette of some of these places and leaving toilet paper everywhere, trash everywhere, different stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. There's all sorts of debate right now within uh, my own little universe around hunter recruitment and <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that whole thing. Um so I'm just kind of curious about your take on where we stand now in 2021 and overcrowding. I don't know. Maybe over overcrowding implies a position. So I would say, are we at risk of loving our public lands to death or how do we handle increasing use? Uh, I'm just kind of curious on what's the Randy Newberg unfiltered opinion on, on all things related to that. Uh, well, I thought like you did. You know, last summer in Montana, we did not close the state. So anyone who had a vacation plan to a state that was closed, I think they came to Montana. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that many people on our rivers, ever. And I thought, oh, they'll go away once Labor Day comes. Nope. They took up hiking and backpacking and mountain biking and everything else. Some of them took up hunting. Uh, so a pandemic, a once in a hundred year once in a century pandemic did more to increase the interest in outdoor activities than all the recruiting we've ever done in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that comes with its consequences. And it, it, it's like everything, nothing is all good or all bad. There's some good that comes of this. Some of these people will stick with the outdoors and it'll become their lifestyle and they'll become the next Mark Kenyon. They'll become the next, you know, whoever, conservation voices and leaders or they'll just be you know someone who participates but they help fund the system and the majority of these people the next time some other cool fad comes along skiing has seen these peaks and valleys as has you know golf and all kinds of activities uh it will come and go there'll be the fair weather folks um but what it does illustrate is the absolute critical importance of access. And I don't like talking about these issues of crowding or hunter densities or whatever in the single context of densities or or hunting pressure or the single context of this or that. It's multifaceted. We have the issue of access. Every time we lose access to development, to bad hunter behavior and a landowner closes their land to somebody comes in and forms a hunt club where 10 people used to hunt this farm and now two people hunt this farm. 
you've displaced eight people over to the public lands. Some rancher gets, you know, something goes wrong there, some bad hunter behavior. He used to let 40 people a year hunt his place, and now he closes it. Those 40 people are now on public lands. So we are seeing an increase in hunter densities because of many things. Yes, we've got this pandemic. I don't think R3 has really been that effective in, in my, this is my personal view. It has not, for the amount of money spent, the results aren't that great. And some would say, oh, come on, you're, you're being too critical. Maybe I am. But I built my platforms based on the idea of access and advocates for public land and public access. And every study we ever read about why hunters quit hunting, why they don't hunt as much as they previously did, or why they didn't get into hunting when they come from a family or background where they normally would be inclined to become hunters. The top answer given to those three questions is access. So if we don't have a place to hunt, all the R3 in the world doesn't do us any good. And the other prong to that is conservation. If we have access, but there's no remaining wildlife there because of how we've managed it, how we've managed the landscape and the wildlife has all moved to other places that are inaccessible, we're, we don't have anything going for us. So I get that some are looking at last year and saying, oh my gosh, what a tide of people. Yeah, I don't know how much trash I picked up last year. I don't know how many camps I had set at trailheads where non-hunters, just campers and, you know, public land users, just average citizens came and set up a camp next to us. And I'll, I'm with you, Mark, there. They must be new because what they understood about etiquette would had left a lot to be desired. But I think we can look at some of this and say, even those who, leave, who view this and they come and try it and they say, ah, it's not for me. Even those who have come and experienced it and leave, having that awareness in our citizenry is useful in the bigger picture of access, of conservation, of clean air, clean water, of all the things we love. I, I can't look at it through just a one-dimensional window. To me, it has way more pieces. It, yes, it has the number of people on the landscape and it's not just on the landscape, but on the landscape at the same time. Mm -hmm. Fishing was crowded. Hunting was crowded. Camping was crowded. But if that doesn't show us the importance of maintaining every bit of access we can and hopefully expanding and increasing more access, I don't know what kind of an illustration we need to convince us of the importance of access. And access to places that are good habitat with good amounts of game. Yeah. So that's that's the Randy Newberg version of that. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciated it. I um I'm right there with you when it comes to the fact that it's this interesting kind of chicken and egg deal because mm -hmm. we need enough places 
we need enough access to, for people to go out there and have these experiences. But to keep those mm-hmm. places and to keep that access, we need people that care about them to fight for them and make sure they don't right. keep getting chipped away at. So yeah. where I fall on this is that, man, I'm all for more people getting out there and seeing these things and, and hiking or camping or learning to hunt or learning to fish or experiencing that. Like you said, whether they stick with it or just come and go, you, nobody watches, at least not many people in my experience watch a Netflix documentary about Yellowstone or something and then become lifelong advocates for wild places and really give a damn after they watch something on TV. But if you go out there and experience it, you know, you hear an elk bugle at night or you get out there and a bear walks up on you while you're fishing and you have that powerful experience or you, you kill your first deer and you eat that you have experiences like that, that transform you and change you mm-hmm. from someone who watches something to actually becoming someone who does something. And I think yep. the more people we can get that care enough about these places to do something, the better mm-hmm. it is for all of us in the long run. So yep. I'm for it. I, and I think the, mm-hmm. I think the one thing I would say that I think this, and nobody, will, nobody likes to hear this. Nobody likes more responsibility, but I think with this, it comes with more responsibility for us that already know what we're doing out there that already have had these experiences. It comes on, comes down to the responsibility we have now to not bitch and moan about them, but instead to educate, like let's help. Let's, Mm -hmm. let's help someone like, Hey, you came out here, you set up camp right next to me and you know, I could be an irritator. You pull up your boat right next to me while I'm fishing this riser here in the corner. And you started casting the same fish. Like that might be like something where I could get pissed off at you, but instead Let's let's teach people. Let's share our experience. Let's say, hey, you know what? Maybe that's not what I would recommend you do, but here's something to try over here. Or let's teach yeah. people about you know, leave no trace ethics, or teach people how to how to hunt. You know, I don't know. It just I just think like, there's our opportunity. Let's let's look yeah. at it as an opportunity and teach versus this threat that we're gonna bemoan. That's, I'm hundred percent on board with you there, Mark. That's one thing I. I was trying to bring forth in in my wandering way. I think this is an opportunity. And if we view it as a threat or an encumbrance or, you know, messing up my way of doing things, we're going to miss that opportunity. So I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. This is an opportunity and I don't think we'll ever get this opportunity again. And I know we won't in my lifetime. I hope we don't in my lifetime. I hope we have no more pandemics. Let this be the end of it. Yeah. Uh, so are we going to squander it or are we going to find the benefits in it and take advantage of those and move forward? Yeah. Well, Randy, I, uh, I hope that's the case. And, uh, man, I'll tell you one thing that makes me confident that we have a chance of doing that is that we have people like you who are, uh, fighting the good fight and spreading the good word. So, uh, I appreciate you, Randy. Thank you for talking with me about this stuff and sharing your perspective and, everything you're doing. Well, thank you, Mark. And that goes both ways. I, you know, you and I get to talk a lot offline and, uh, I have so much respect for what you're doing and, and the voice you provide and the audience you have. So I'm, I'm honored anytime that you'll have me on and, uh, please keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you. Uh, I'll, I'm going to say one thing that I promise I'm not going to wait four more years to get you back on the podcast. <laughs> That's insane. I don't know how that happened. So you're going to, you're going to have to get used to me calling you more often here because this just needs to happen more, more. <laughs>
Yeah. Maybe we should do it in a duck blind or something. Hey, I'm all for that. I'm Wouldn't that be that. cool? I wonder what your audience would think if all of a sudden you and I both went silent and they hear, take them, <laughs> kaboom, kaboom. I think they'd probably <laughs> like it a lot better than hearing me jaw all the time at least. <laughs> uh, one last thing, Randy, for, for people that want more of what you've got going on, um, mm-hmm. can you point people in the direction of either the more you know generic platforms or any specific yeah. things that might be of interest? Are there any really interesting podcasts you've dropped recently or video projects that you think people should seek out that are relevant to some of the things we talked about? Anything like that? I'd love to hear about. Uh, I appreciate that, Mark. I, uh, this spring has been really, really busy uh, with legislative stuff. So a lot of our content has been focused on policy, legislation, how to be engaged, how to be involved. We've got YouTube episodes coming out on that, on our YouTube channel. Uh, I think we've dropped two podcasts already on the topic and we're going to be doing more of that. Um, so yeah, uh, you've been on my hunt talk radio podcast before, uh, pretty easy to find that. And then our YouTube channel is Randy Newberg Hunter, and that's the same for Facebook and Instagram. And so, uh, yeah, if people want to go there and find it, uh, we love the feedback of if they want more of this, less of it. And what we're finding is as much as people may not want it, they're saying, hey, thanks for putting that out there. It's 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 helpful to to understand it and to realize how important it is. And I I've seen so much more active engagement this year than I have in previous years. I'm really encouraged by how people are getting after it. So that's great. Well, I uh, I would certainly encourage anyone listening to to go and check all that out. I, I can tell you from personal experience, everything that you've put out there, Randy, has been both entertaining and helpful to me personally and, and a lot of folks I know. So, uh, so thanks for that, Randy. And thank you for, thanks for this. It was a fun chat. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Anytime. Take care. All right. That's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you for listening. You know, if this kind of stuff intrigues you, if you're interested in learning more about public lands, public land history, public land policy, public land challenges and opportunities and all that kind of stuff, there's a book on all this. Don't know if you ever heard of it. It's called That Wild Country, An Epic Journey Through the Past, Present, and Future of America's Public Lands. And I wrote it. (laughs) Probably 99.9% of you are rolling your eyes because you've heard me talk about it a million times. So thanks for uh, bearing with me on this. But if you're new and you haven't heard of that book yet, I got to recommend you check it out because uh, I hope all the time I put into it uh, is reflected with it being actually helpful. And uh, and I I think and hope it is. So... That's all for me. Appreciate you. Enjoy the rest of your week. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. 
hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.